This year, April 6 marks an anniversary in Bosnia that won't come with any cake. Twenty years ago, Serbian forces in the surrounding hills began attacking the city of Sarajevo, and life changed for everyone in the capital of the newly formed nation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. I was just completing my secondary school, and I didn't expect that I will literally from the classroom get into the trenches. Bosnian journalist Amir Telebicirovic joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell how his dreams of going to college were interrupted by nearly four years of war. I even learned how to dig the grave when the grave diggers were so busy that they uh, didn't have time to prepare the graves for the others. We'll hear how people survived the horrific siege and what it's like to visit Sarajevo today as it rebuilds its reputation as a city of religious and ethnic harmony. We'll open up the hour checking in with listeners with tips for making friends in our travels at 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Its nickname is the Jerusalem of Europe. Yet in 1992, Sarajevo became engulfed in a horrible war and endured a bloody siege. The city had hosted the Olympics just eight years earlier, and it had a long reputation as a harmonious home for people of different religions and ethnic groups. Sarajevo boasted an impressive history going back to its founding as an Ottoman capital in the 15th century. But scars from the tragedies of the 20th century are still easy to spot. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, a Bosnian journalist shares what he and his family endured 20 years ago when the siege of Sarajevo began. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves on a different note as we check in with listeners with ideas for making friends in our travels and connecting with the people in the places we visit. We're at 877-333-7425. Julie's on the line in Sacramento, California. Julie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I love your backdoor travel philosophy. Travel is so much richer when you get to experience the local culture. And what better way to experience the culture than through the people? But how do you connect with the locals when you're really shy? Well, one thing I always remind myself is that we're shy because we're kind of worried about what people will think of us because you have to deal with those people if they think poorly of you or something. But when I'm traveling, nobody knows who I am, and uh, I'm not going to see these people tomorrow because I'm just always on the move, and I can be a little bit of a crazy nut. The people who are comfortable being crazy nuts are the ones who make all the friends over there and have all the good, spontaneous, unpredictable memories. And a lot of us who are shy have to work on that. It's a skill to be just a little bit extroverted, and that's the challenge. When I'm in Europe, if I see three guys sitting on a bench... I'll join them, and I'll talk to them. And I kind of remind myself that they're probably bored with their little station. They're probably bored with their conversation. They're probably friendly characters. They're probably just as curious about me as I am curious about them. In fact, that's a very important assumption to make, is that we may find these people fascinating and sometimes even kind of bizarre, and they find us fascinating and sometimes even kind of bizarre. So when you see those three people on the bench and you approach them, what do you say? (laughs) (laughs) Buongiorno. First of all, I just clown around with their language. I might say, Uh mamma mia, and they might say, you know, Obama, and pretty soon we've got a conversation going. You have to be willing to toss out the first volley in a conversation like that. Uh Um, It is a trick, and I've got an advantage because I'm over there working, and I have friends that I work with and see year after year. But when I'm on my own, I know that if my day is, is less interesting and there's just no dazzle to it, it's because I was not doing a very good job of meeting people. We do need to know that there are certain avenues that you take when you want to meet people. If you go into a pub in Ireland or Scotland or England, and if you sit at a table, you're doing yourself a disservice if you want to meet people because the table is where people sit not to be social. If you want to be social, you sit at the bar. When somebody sits at the bar, they know people are sitting there because they're open to talking. They want to talk. And there's lots of examples like that. One thing Americans are good at is being able to take that first step. We are less formal. We're more casual and friendly and easygoing, and and that can be a real advantage in your travels. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Julie, good luck on meeting the people, because you and I know that's what carbonates your travel experience. All right, thanks. All right. Rob's on the line in North Andover, Massachusetts. Rob, thanks for your call. My pleasure, Rick. Now, you heard Julie just now? I did. It was very interesting. Now, you had a chance to actually um, prove out my point, I think, here. How did you meet some people, and what happened? My wife and I were traveling. It was our first trip to Europe, and uh, one of the stops was in London. So needless to say, like anybody else, we wanted to see some of the major sites, and not the least of which was to take a walk down, I think it's uh, Whitehall Avenue, and stop off at 10 Downing Street, at least to try to see where the prime minister lived. We approached the gate, 
and there were throngs of people. There probably were three or four deep, and it was clear to us immediately that there was no way we were really going to get close, and we decided to have some fun with the bobbies that were behind the gate. I took out the video camera, which for me, anytime you put somebody on camera, it's always a, a big laugh. I started bantering with them, and I I'd said to one of them in particular, I said, I need to get a really good shot of two of the nicest bobbies in all of London, the hell with 10 Downing Street. And they started to laugh, and we started joking back and forth. And before I knew it, I was asked to approach the gate, and he asked me, uh, hey, mate, how'd you like to go to the front door? And I said, I'd love to do it. So before we knew it, he opened the gate, and we were standing in front of the Prime Minister's door. It was surreal. Wait a minute, Rob. You're on Whitehall there in London, and they got the big black iron gate that all the tourists press up against and can't even get near. You've got it. And you just joked around with the Bobbies, disarmed them. They invited you in and took you down that special street to the Prime Minister's front door. I have the photos and the videotape to prove it, Rick. You wouldn't believe it. I didn't dream that's possible, but that is giving us all hope that we can make the impossible happen when we make friends with the guys who manned the gate. It was amazing. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, we did have a little bit more of an extended conversation. I mentioned to him that I had a dad and a nephew that was a police officer, and I could certainly relate to what it was that they were doing. And we became instant friends. We had a lot of fun. I couldn't believe it. To this day, it it still amazes me that we got that close. And it was a travel memory that I'll never forget. And the lesson is, you made it happen. It didn't come to you. You made it happen. You've got your shtick with your video camera. You're not very proud about just clowning around with these guys. You're just there having a good time, and it worked for you. That's exactly right. I didn't realize that 10 Downing Street was so far removed from Whitehall. Uh, I thought it would be a little bit closer. Right. But, no, uh, you don't see anything. You just stand there seeing these annoyed bobbies and a bunch of annoying tourists. And you got the frustration of if somebody famous is coming in, everybody has to get out of the way. They open the gates and a black limo with tinted windows drives by. And then they close the gates and all the tourists push up against the gates again. Exactly right. Huh? And, and so we bailed on the idea of 10 Downing Street and decided just to have some fun with the bobbies that were there. And it worked out very well for us, an experience I'll never forget. You never know. I was a couple hundred meters from there last, uh, about a year ago, at Westminster Abbey. And I met a guard there in his red outfit standing at the exit of Westminster Abbey. I got talking to this guy, and he actually said, come with me. And on his break, he took me to the room that nobody else gets to see, where they actually translated the King James Bible. And there's these little you know, eurekas that are there for those of us who will stop and talk to people. And you can just be a friendly, talkative, casual tourist with a video camera, and you'd be surprised at some of the fun things you can stumble upon. Especially when you're dealing with an individual who's encountering tourists day in and day out. There's kind of a, you know, an employee-tourist relationship. And I think if you can break that barrier and and have a personal relationship with them, it works out well. Well, that was the cool line that you had. You said, I don't care about the prime minister. I want to talk to some good-looking bobbies. Yeah, exactly right. Right away, you had a friend. And he started to laugh, and we had a good time. And the rest is history, as they say. And, Rob, you're inspiring some other travelers to connect that way. Rob in Massachusetts, thanks for your call. My pleasure. Okay, happy travels. Take care. Bye now. Michael's on the line in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. You got an uh, idea for us about travel? Uh, going over to uh, Sweden and finding our uh, long-lost relatives. I really encourage this for anyone that has lost contact with their family roots from the old country. My grandparents were from Sweden. The family uh, lost contact with our uh, relatives over there. So my mother had done some uh, initial research by writing the uh, libraries over there and getting some information. We were very confused because the town that they were from, my mother's mother, was Omot. It's A with a little O over it, M-O-T. But there were about five or six of these towns in Sweden, so we didn't know exactly where to go. So my wife and I went over with this basic information to the genealogy library in Karlstadt on the western side of Sweden, and the people there were just very helpful, and they uh, pinned it down. It wasn't uh, Omats, it was Omats Fors, which mm. was another little town. So we drove there, went to the church and the graveyard, and the people were very, very helpful. We saw my great-grandmother's grave with uh, gravestones and some great-aunts and great-uncles. But we were looking for living relatives to try and make that connection again. Part of the family had moved to a nearby town called Alvika, 
So we had to go to that church, and they had the actual name of a person that was maintaining the grave of some of our relatives in that town. And this person lived back at the original town. Okay. And so we had a little slip of paper with the name of our relative and the phone number, and we went back to the original church and asked the lady there if they would make a phone call and try and reach that person and translate for us. And I gave her the little slip of paper, and she said, Oh, my gosh, he's sitting in the outer lobby. And so we rushed out there, and they introduced us, and we met long-lost relatives from Sweden. Uh, They uh, treated us royalty, continued our trip through Norway, and actually came back to that town Uh. on a Sunday and went to the church that my great-grandmother attended with our newfound relatives. In Sweden, I think by some measures, the greatest percent of the population left the country during tough times in the 1800s and emigrated to the United States. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if you've seen the movie The New Land or The Immigrants, but those are two great movies telling the story of the Swedish immigration. The whole story of coming to the New Land is quite exciting, and now they're ready for us to come back there and and kind of tracking down their roots. wonderful. The library in Karlstad, since we didn't know exactly, you know, which town it was or where to go, we had to do real detective work. And we had three or four people helping us at the same time doing different parts of this to try and figure out exactly which town it was. And that was just a service the library provided? We, we had to pay a small fee, uh-huh. but they were very, very helpful. That's great. And then when we got to the church, they had computerized all the graveyard records. We gave the person the basic information, and she would type it in the computer, and then she would look up at us and say, oh, do you want to see your great-grandmother's grave? And we said, yes, of course. Whoa. And she just takes us out to the graveyard, very well-maintained, beautiful graveyards with fresh flowers oh. on the graves. When we met our relatives, they were uh, elderly in early 70s. We didn't speak Swedish, and they didn't speak very much English. When they were kids in school, they didn't teach English. They taught German. Right. I spoke a little bit of German, so we were, you know, in Sweden talking to our relatives in German. (laughs) Did they know who you were? Since we met at the church, the people introduced us and had to explain in Swedish who we were. But did they know of you beforehand? No, 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 before we got there. So you could have been anybody. I could have gone there and faked it. Yeah. See, now there's an interesting travel tip. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people could take that as a a little nudge and not only find the tombstone with their family name on it, but find some of the long-lost relatives. Yeah, it was one of the most uh, amazing things uh, that has happened to me and and well worth it. All right. Hey, Michael, thanks for your call. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. One of the most poignant places for getting to know the locals in Eastern Europe is Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina. The Bosnian War that followed the breakup of Yugoslavia only ended with the Dayton Peace Accords, which were signed just before Christmas in 1995. Today, reconstruction includes not only buildings, but an attempt to restore the reputation of Sarajevo as a city known for multi-ethnic harmony, even if the ethnic mix has been reshuffled quite a bit since the war. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, a journalist from Sarajevo tells us what it was like for him and his family during the Bosnian War and what the tone of the city's like today. We're at The fall of communism and the subsequent breakup of Yugoslavia led to fierce fighting that hadn't been seen on European soil since the Second World War. On April 6th, in 1992, Serbian forces began attacking the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. The only hint the residents of Sarajevo had that war was about to break out 
was the fiery nationalistic rhetoric politicians fostered in a sinister bid to redraw the lines of the newly forming Balkan states. Fights for territory between the Serbs, Croats, and Bosnians would last nearly four years and bring us the term ethnic cleansing as a euphemism for genocide. A note of caution, some of what we'll be discussing in this segment will be graphic and may not be suitable for some younger or more sensitive listeners. We'll return to more of what today's Bosnia is like with suggestions for tourism there, starting in about 20 minutes. Thank you for being with us, Amir. Thank you for inviting me. We know the siege was in 1992, but you grew up in Sarajevo. What was Sarajevo like before the siege? How is it important to the people of Bosnia-Herzegovina? That's one of the things that I'm explaining to the visitors of Sarajevo today. They ask me like things like, have you been prepared for this war and, and things and I say uh, me, and when I say me, I mean many people of my generation. We were simply enjoying life until 1992. We, we were not seeing it coming. We, we heard about some possibilities. There was a war already in Croatia, in Slovenia, etc. But we didn't believe it could something like that, like medieval type of the siege could happen in the middle of Europe at the end of the 20th century, etc. So before the war, we were simply going to the rock concerts, partying, even ridiculing, you know, these uh, new nationalists. That appeared, or ridiculing uh, so. the people who were fighting and other yeah. tearing Yugoslavia yeah, apart. Jokes so life is good in Sarajevo. Yeah. You had the Olympics there. When were the Olympics in Sarajevo? 1984. Just eight years before. Yeah. What does Sarajevo mean to the people of Bosnia-Herzegovina? Well, to the people who are not too nationalists today, it means the, uh, the symbol of the multi-ethnic life and multi-religious life, actually, in a former Yugoslavia. Because it was the biggest percentage of the um, interreligious and uh, interethnic uh, marriages in Sarajevo and Mostar too. So it's the most integrated of the, of yeah. the areas. So you so, would think that it would be inclined to be peaceful. Yeah. I mean, for example, just 1991, prior to the siege, when there was war in Slovenia, there was something like Sarajevo was version of Woodstock. There was a huge concert in the Sarajevo in the Olympic Hall. Everybody was invited, bands from all over the former Yugoslavia. It was supposed to be for peace. There was, I was there, it was fascinating. It was like, I don't know how many thousand of people, but unfortunately, you know, it didn't stop the war. It was just less than a year before the siege started. So the siege starts in April of 1992. Yeah. Now, what was it like leading up to the siege as you were there? You realized your, your innocent youth, the uh, distance of the war was all falling away. Uh, I remember uh, winter, 91, 92, so maybe December, January, we heard from the people who would go for skiing up on the hills around Sarajevo that when they were coming back, they, they've seen something strange, like from Yugoslav, the army was bringing some engineers, construction, digging, something working. Uh, they even saw some tanks driving around, um, bulldozers, etc. And uh, it happened near the uh, tourist sites where people were going for skiing, etc. You know, uh, still you could go there; it was safe. But obviously, something was going on. But we didn't we didn't figure out what could it be. Now these were mm. forces from what was left of Yugoslavia, yeah. basically Serbia. But yeah, mostly. As Yugoslavia got smaller and smaller, it, yeah, beca- yeah, yeah. it became just a kind of a, a sham for yeah. for Serbia. Yeah, but by that time, that Yugoslav army was mostly controlled by the former leader of okay. Serbia, and Slobodan then, Milosevic, and they were organizing the siege of Sarajevo before it really happened. So the siege didn't happen overnight. There was a certain preparation. So how did the tension build day by day? Through the media and through the propaganda. We had some media who were promoting peace and peaceful coexistence at the same time with some media who were controlled by different political parties, whether Serb nationalists or Croat nationalists, etc., who were um, promoting more like kind of nationalism. Who were the three sectarian groups? That's a catchy part, uh, especially when visitors come to Sarajevo today or Bosnia generally. One of the first things they ask me, like, how can they tell uh, differences between the ordinary people walking in the streets of Sarajevo, Mostar, Tuzla, and they got even more confused when I explained them, you cannot, at least in physiognomy. So, but there's mm. three groups then. There's Orthodox... Uh, oh, in religion, yeah. There's uh, the Orthodox Christians, Catholics, and the Muslims. So there's three ethnic groups who happen to have three different religions. Yeah. And I understand mm-hmm. from the blood or ethnicity, you look at Orthodox, Catholic, or Muslim, they're the same people. They just have different yes. different heritage. Yeah. Even the, when we speak about religion in this case, it's not a religion in a sense of spirituality. No. It's more like a culture. Your family's heritage. Yeah, because Bosnia was a secular country for more than a century. You know? but, mm-hmm. but it seems to me parts of Yugoslavia that had huge majorities, dominant majorities mm-hmm. of one of these groups and then a small minority, they were more peaceful. But the parts of former Yugoslavia that had major big groups that were in the minority... Yeah. That was where the worst, the most difficult fighting happened. Is, is that true? In a way, yes, but... Because Bosnia would have been the one country that was the most diverse. Yeah. 
which is why these media, I mentioned uh, nationalist ones, were more focused on provoking conflicts in Bosnia because they knew it would be a very difficult task for them. So this is media of these sectarian groups within Bosnia yeah. or was it media from Serbia first had an it, agenda to keep Bosnia as part of Yugoslavia? First it was from Serbia, partly from Croatia, and then it moved into Bosnia also. So the Croats had an interest in taking Bosnia away from Serbia and the Serbs had an interest in keeping Bosnia yeah, with Serbia. With Serbia and Montenegro. So there's yeah. media doing this, yeah. and then you had media with your own groups within Sarajevo. Yeah, yeah it moved it through the nationalist parties within Bosnia. And how did the media drum up the uh, moderate, middle, peace-loving people who married into the other group? How did the media effectively Well, for example, uh, depends what was their goal. If they were focused on uh, making, let's say, fear among the ordinary Serbs, they would tell them like something what their parents remember from the World War II, about uh, how they suffered from the Nazi regime, etc., and how the uh, Croats are planning to, to do that again. Kind of like they should be afraid of their own neighbors who are Croats. Because even it, before all of this problem, there was that World War II heritage of were you partisans or were you fascists? Is that yeah. right? So every, every region, every family had to be either pro-communist yeah. or pro-fascist. Yeah, well, sometimes they were forced to be, sometimes they, yeah. they chose to. But you couldn't hardly get out of that. You had to be in one camp or the other. Yeah, so the media continued. That was, I said, like on relations Serbs and Croats. And when it came to the Bosnian Muslims, propaganda was saying like about how they are like trying to reestablish uh, Turkish Ottoman Empire, that Serbs would be subjugated, etc. So, you know, so they're dredging up this old stuff. Yeah. 45 years later, your dad was a partisan and your dad was a, a fascist and, yeah. and you supported whatever. Yeah, things like that. Mm-hmm. So what happened when the violence finally came to Sarajevo then? Well, as I said, like in April 92, when we figured out uh, what former Yugoslav army was doing up on the mountains around Sarajevo, it was not just, uh, although they had the bulldozers and engineers, it was not just for fixing, I don't know, some antennas, you know, like they were obviously making trenches and bunkers and everything. So when Bosnia got recognized internationally, the beginning oh, of this April. this was done in anticipation of Bosnia yes. being recognized. Yes, because they were thinking maybe because Slovenia and Croatia already did it yeah. a year before, they was uh, anticipating that Bosnia might do the same. And Bosnia and, hoped they could do it as peacefully as yeah. Slovenia. Yeah. And engineers were coming in from Serbia or yeah, Yugoslavia yeah, or saying yeah. they're going to build an antenna, but they're really laying the groundwork for a siege. Yeah, well, and there was a <laughs> bizarre wow. explanation of one of the Yugoslav commanders. He says, like, because of the instable situation in Yugoslavia, they said, like, we are preparing to protect Sarajevo in case of some attack. <laughs> I'm from the government and I'm here to protect you. Yeah. I've heard that line before. I'm here to protect you from your own. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Amir Telebicirovic. And we're talking about uh, living in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo. So, Amir, one one season you're you're skiing and playing basketball with friends from different sectarian groups. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you realize the battle lines have been drawn. What happened in Sarajevo to your life when you realized we have a war in our city? Uh, well, on the 6th of April 1992, there was a big peace rally in downtown of Sarajevo. I was there, I was 19 years, it was my 19th birthday. Thousands of people were there on the streets. And then we were in front of the Bosnian government where there were some nationalist parties. So uh, people were asking for them to um, make anything is possible to stop segregating people and asking for Yugoslav army to withdraw into the barracks. Although many of us didn't know that it was too late because they were definitely uh, digged in. And so the, the tanks and artillery The Serbian army also. had dug in. Yeah, the tanks and artillery was there too. So at this point uh-huh. it was give up or have a war. There was no alternative. Yeah. And then in the city, the Holiday Inn Hotel uh, used for the former Olympic Games 1984, where the um, snipers were hiding. And their task was, I guess you know about the war criminal, Karadzic, who is right now in uh, Hague in Tribunal for War Criminals, for War Crimes... There were some of his men inside who were snipers and who had the task to shoot into the peace rally so they could cause a chaos. And then uh, military police of Yugoslav army would uh, establish kind of like military state or something like that. So the snipers were there to create chaos so that police had the excuse to put in a military... Yeah, and then to say we canceled the result of the referendum, which oh. happened one month before referendum of Bosnia. That's a dirty trick. One of many. <laughs> what were the young people, the the young generation... What was it like? All of a sudden, you well, were all wrapped up in this. I was just completing my secondary school, and I didn't expect that I will literally from the classroom get into the trenches, you know. Now, when the city got under the siege, I lived in one neighborhood near Sarajevo, where the Serbian paramilitary troops came, and uh, they started ethnic cleansing. Now, since everybody in Bosnia looks the same, they cannot tell, they, there was no differences in the physiognomy. That's why we don't use the word sectarians, is because most of us believe it's the same people of same origin. Right. So it's the same language, everybody looks the same. 
same country of origin. So the only way they could uh, make distinction between the people of uh, different ethnicities were the names, which means the uh, Serbian patrol could stop you on the street, ask for your ID or driving license. So you could have an Orthodox uh, name, you could have a Catholic name, or you could have a Muslim name. Yeah. Without that, they could not tell the difference. So So ethnic cleansing was just, what family are you in? Exactly. And this family had to be in one of, there's no option, you're A, B, or C. Yeah. And at the same time, there was many, like for example, in neighborhood where I lived, Serbs who were risking their own freedom, sometimes their own life, in order to preserve, to save their own uh, non-Serb neighbors, like it happened in my case. So it sounds like you were not sectarian, you were just Bosnian, let's find a way to live together. But what did you do? Did you then get involved in the army yourself? Later on, not immediately. First, we lived in this suburb from where we escaped, but we were alive thanks to this old Serbian guy who was uh, taking care of the old Bosnian Muslim and Bosnian Croats in his neighborhood. What is your family? Well, we come from the Bosnian Muslim family. We grew okay. up in a, in a secular But you would uh, have been uh, like, considered so. a, a Muslim. Muslim. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the policy of the uh, radical Serbian forces. They wouldn't ask if you are like um, observant Muslim who are attending a mosque or, uh, you know, like somebody who's secular or even atheist, as long as you have the so-called wrong name in the wrong place, what they consider to be Serbian land. So it was mostly war for the territory. Right. They used this ethnic propaganda, you know, well, but it was mostly later it was proved, even Milosevic admitted when he was alive that uh, it was mostly for territory, but of course people... Uh, Did you lose loved ones? Yeah, my father was killed, uh, my grandmother and uh, one of my cousins ended up in concentration camps. Uh, it was just fine three years ago in one of the mass graves around Sarajevo. And since now, years later, when people dig out the bodies, you know, it's only skeleton, so they bring them to the forensic laboratory and they take out the DNA from the bones. Oh, so you could find some bones and match it yeah. definitively with your family yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. My father was killed the 8th of November, uh, 92, and he was in some fire exchange. That's what I heard. I haven't been there, but I heard he was hit, bullet hit him in the back and uh, he happened to be too far from the Sarajevo hospital. And to get from that position to the hospital was too late. Then you had to avoid with a car what we used to call Sniper Alley. Maybe you heard about it from the news. It was all over. There was some street where the uh, radical Serbian forces were so close to the city center, they were mostly using snipers instead of heavy artillery. So the whole street was called Sniper Alley. Anyway, so to avoid the street, to get to the hospital, it took some time. So by the time my father reached the hospital, which was without power at that time, he bled to death. That's what they told me. So later we organized the funeral because most of the Sarajevo uh, cemeteries were occupied with many, many bodies. It was difficult to find a free spot. And his mother, my grandmother, she died exactly 11 months later, 8th of October, 93. So for her, it was a similar problem. We had to take her to a hospital, then it was again too late. Plus, in 93, you could hardly find um, enough cars, which would have enough fuel uh, to get you there. By that time, mostly either were smugglers and black market profiteers or UN troops. They had enough uh, fuel. So uh, we had to bury her also. But, but Was there time, a cemetery that was your family cemetery? Or? No. No, it was you was burying people wherever is uh, cemeteries were more full, or less right? safe. Yeah, mostly. Oh no, is that issue of what places were safe to go to? What was somebody. safe and where it was enough uh, dirt, enough. Uh, Conceivably, the cemetery would be where you hoped to bury, but the snipers could see the cemeteries. Well, you could find protection from snipers. There were some that were hidden behind some tall buildings or hills, but from the shells, you could hardly find a free spot. Because I'll never forget walking through parks in Mostar mm-hmm. near Sarajevo, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the park used to be a park, now it's a cemetery, and every yeah. tombstone. 1993. Exactly the same thing is in Sarajevo. We were burying people in the spots. Even when all the football stadium, when uh, it was out of use, we turned it into the, the football stadium, also. Filled, yeah. with, filled with tombs. Soccer stadium. I even learned to how to dig the grave when the grave diggers were so busy that they uh, didn't have time to prepare the graves for the others. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Amir Telebicerovic, and we're talking about living through the siege of Sarajevo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Marsha's on the line in St. Joseph, Michigan. Marsha, thanks for your call. Hello. Do you have a comment or a question for Amir? I, I have no real question about Sarajevo. We traveled there about three years ago, and I was much in awe of the events that had occurred that were not very well publicized in the United States, the troubles, the war, the events that occurred there. It was just amazing to see the city. And when were you there? 2008. It's a powerful experience even 15 years after the war. Oh, yes. The hillsides that are filled with the white tombs, there's just hundreds and hundreds of them. Did you notice the, what is it called, the Sarajevo Roses? Oh, yes, on the sidewalks. Amir, explain a Sarajevo Rose. Uh, Yeah, that's the uh, kind of unique for Sarajevo and Mostar, these um, prints of the mortar shells that are in the pavement and the concrete. There are thousands of them. They look kind of 
strange shape, you know, like uh, we used to call it like dinosaur's footprint, a dragon footprint, more more symbolic. Uh, there was one Bosnian artist after the war, and he filled them with red color. He paved it with red color. Yeah. So the the explosion mark in the road was mm-hmm. filled in with red pavement. Yeah, yeah. It the night after and the war, yeah. roses. And there is no any like plate with explanation or something like that because uh, it was supposed to be neutral symbol. It just represents the suffering blood, you know. Like that's what mortar shells were, yeah. that their meaning. Marsha, it's a powerful experience to actually visit a city like that and see it pulling itself back together, isn't it? Well, it is a very um, up-to-date, modern, easy city to visit, but they have left some remains to remind anybody that's there of what they went through. The library, for instance, they've left it in its original burned-out bomb state, and there's a plaque on the door that says, we leave it like this to remind you what war does to a culture, the literacy of a country. It was an amazing statement to leave it just as it is. That's what war does to a country. Marsha, what would you recommend that when people go to Sarajevo, they're sure to have on their list? To see the tunnel. And what is the tunnel? Well, there was a tunnel that was dug under the airport so that supplies could be brought into Sarajevo from the mountainsides. And it was a tremendous effort to bring supplies to those that were in need. You know, they dug a tunnel. So this was a secret tunnel to provide for the people who were being sieged? Yes. Amir, did you know about this tunnel? I passed through it twice. You passed through it. What is it like during the war? Yeah. Just before Marisha called, I was about to mention it. The siege of Sarajevo, it meant that the city was literally completely blocked. The only way, safe way, to get inside or outside was through this tunnel. Now, tunnel was digged I think starting in December uh, 92, when it was too obvious that uh, war is not going to be too short. So it was about 800 meters mm-hmm. under the airport. The reason why it was under the airport of Sarajevo, it was a very small tunnel, similar to the one when Berlin was divided into the eastern and western section, you know, okay. when people had digged under the wall. And it was secret? Not. The Yugoslavian army did well, not know about it? it was supposed to be secret, but they knew. They knew about it because um, airport was held by the U- international UN troops. Uh-huh. And they were not happy uh, to have this tunnel under the airport. And they were supposed to be neutral, actually, whatever it meant, neutrality in their case. And this is open to tourists now? Yeah. It's actually a museum? Yeah. Marcia, you would recommend uh, taking a little trip inland from uh, Dubrovnik and, and oh, learn yes. from the history it's of Sarajevo. Sarajevo. Leave a lasting memory on your mind. Thanks for your call, Marcia. You bet. As we're hearing from Amir, attempts to make Sarajevans afraid of their neighbors didn't work with everybody. Today, the city's residents are putting aside the wounds of war, and some are using their history to teach the rest of the world about the value of living together peacefully in a diverse society and the price you pay when you fail in that regard. We'll look into the war sites you can visit today in Sarajevo and see how efforts to renew a spirit of cooperation are coming along. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can post your comments in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Amir Televicirovich. I learned to say your name a little bit better. And uh, we're talking about actually living through the siege of Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Amir, I'm always thinking about how many different countries have different baggage. In the United States, we have baggage because of 9-11. You know, we had a horrible attack on our country. And even today, you know, uh, second decade after that, we're still thinking about that a lot. Yeah. Now, in Sarajevo, you must have some baggage about the siege of Sarajevo. What do people mm. live with today in Sarajevo as they try to carve out a, a more promising and peaceful future? Uh, many people are trying to think about future, but of course, it's it's not about want or don't want to forget the past. You simply, you can hardly erase these three and a half years uh, experience from your mind. But it's not about uh, trauma. Many people are talking about it, but they're talking about it simply as a part of life, not as something secret or uh, some hard depression. Everybody's talking about uh, war, but it's a normal part of life, you know. Simply it happened. If it lasted for one week, maybe they would forget it, but three and a half years, it's very difficult. And in a way, I mean, we have a word, Balkan, right? I mean, the Balkanization. You guys have not done a very good job of living peacefully with your neighbors for the last 800 years or something. But most of these things, all these wars, they were all caused by some outside uh, empire, whether it be Byzantine or a Turkish Ottoman or Austrian-Hungarian or Germany or... Because when you uh, think of it, Bosnia is exactly where the... Eastern world hits the Western world, yeah. where Muslim world hits Christian world, 
where West and East come together. Also Orthodox and Catholics. So there's so many adjustments. It's like, I always think of it as like tectonic plates when you think about Mm. earthquakes or something. Yeah, yeah. And Bosnia is uh, almost symbolic as the place where it comes. So unfortunately, you guys have a lot of sorting out to do. But, you know, your friend's father, who runs a shop across the street, Mm might have killed your father. I mean, you have to live with that. I mean, is there pressure in families to not forget and don't play with those people? Is there pressure today, or is the spirit is to put that behind and live together? I think we have both, uh, but nothing is black and white in Bosnia. We have segregation, and uh, people don't appreciate, you know, to hang with each other. But at the same time, we have places like not only Sarajevo, where uh, this peaceful coexistence continue. Talking about ordinary people, not talking about uh, politicians. I, I don't imagine you could forgive somebody who directly uh, did an atrocity against your community, but can you live with their children, honestly, with, yes. with no problem? Yes, I am, for example, I'm coming from the Bosnian Muslim family. My wife comes from the Orthodox uh, tradition, but we both consider ourselves simply as Bosnians because being Bosnian is not uh, determined by these ethnicities within. You know, we believe it's better for everybody to be simply Bosnian and at home they can be whatever they like. Uh, even today, despite everything that happened, in Sarajevo it's possible in half an hour to visit the mosque, Orthodox church, Catholic church, and Jewish synagogue in the same neighborhood. It's like that for centuries. And that's something what many people uh, have no idea. They only heard uh, the tragedies and stuff like that. So when you, like, when you hear a church mm-hmm. bell ringing or if you hear a mosque calling to prayer, does that send feelings of anger and, and no, resentment I, across? I grew up with that. It's normal for me. I can hear it at the same time. Because Americans don't, a lot of Americans have never heard mm-hmm. the chorus of church bells and yeah. Muslim calls to prayer in the same town. I hear it at the same time, and when you climb up to one of the hills around Sarajevo, and we listen it at least three times a week down in the valley, since Sarajevo is not a very big city, everything's close to each other, uh, you can hear it as an echo, you know, like you can hardly say where the church bells or muezzin call for a prayer coming from, they're mixing each other, you know. That's a beautiful thing. And I learned about the Jewish and uh, Orthodox and Catholic culture, not from the faculty or schools, but simply from my next-door neighbors. There was an interesting thing when I was growing up in Sarajevo. Muslim kids were looking forward Easter because kids liked painting eggs. And the non-Muslim kids were looking forward the uh, eight or Maitam, as we call it, Muslim holiday, because there is a lot of baklavas around. They liked the sweets. So, so when you look at through the children's eyes... That's you know, a positive you know, thing. So, do families or to the different groups join different sports teams to exercise their sectarian pride? Well, we have that hooliganism, yeah. Give me an example of an outlet for violence. And, there and, is like, and, for example, the uh, football team from one part of Bosnia, which is the area which is dominantly Bosnian Croats, mm-hmm. comes to Sarajevo or to some other area which is dominantly Bosnian Muslims or Bosniaks. So hooligans, for example, that's an interesting part. They can sit in a bar and drink together when there is no match. Okay. But when there is a match... You would get it sounds like it's a war. Then you again, stay out of that like bar. You stay out of, no, not know. just bar. When they come to the stadium, that's that's a war, like a war. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Amir Telebicerovic, who comes to us from Sarajevo in Bosnia. We're talking about living through the siege of Sarajevo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Tom's on the line in Seattle. Tom, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's Rava Amira. Zdravo. So I've, I've got a question for you about the Sarajevo. I'm not certain if it's a dialect or Sarajevo slang, but normally in Bosnia you see your friend on the street and you'd say, Shtaima, uh, but in Sarajevo I hear people say, Shtamai, where they've changed the letters around, kind of like Pig Latin. And I'm wondering if that slang or dialect is common on the streets of Sarajevo among young and old, and did you ever use it in the war as a form of code? We used it before the war, during the war, and after the war, and it's still all over. It's one of the things how you can tell that uh, somebody is from Sarajevo. Although uh, I have to admit that that kind of language now is uh, spread it in uh, other parts of the former Yugoslavia, but uh, originally it's uh, from Sarajevo, and it's still used. And uh, average Sarajevan can speak very quickly. It's not something that you learn in a school. It's simply by growing up there. What's an example? Uh, like, just like as Tom mentioned, the word that I turned upside down, not completely. Like first, uh, you cut the word into two and the last half of the uh, word you put in up front. Of course, you need to think about it, how to put it quickly, but somehow when you grow up with that... Pineapple would be apple pine. Exactly, something like that. Or uh, we can make complete sentences, uh, you know, like talk like that for half an hour, you know, like so the others wouldn't understand that. So Sarajevo people could understand each other, yeah, and some guy coming language, in from you know. Belgrade might not. He might understand some things because, as I said, like that's kind of big Latin. What he'd, he'd say, hear like, it and he'd, he'd know you're from Syria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's partly in use already in Belgrade and in, uh, in somewhere in Croatia also. Tom, thanks for your call. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Tom.
Hvala, vidimo se. How else did the people of Sarajevo cope with this horrific period with, with black humor? Did, did humor come into it much? Just living through a war uh, when like war this. started, actually, we thought like, okay, maybe war is going to um, decrease, you know, existing humor. But it happened opposite. You know, to survive from snipers, to escape from snipers, from shells, you know, you need to have physical activities, either to run or to hide. But for mental survival, we used uh, black humor a lot. For example, there were some of the many jokes related to international community and their lack of willingness to intervene. Tell me and a so joke. war in Bosnia. It says, why is Bosnia? So unlucky country, only country with a Muslim population, but no oil. <laughs> or like the famous graffiti on a very old post office from the 19th century from the Austrian-Hungarian period in Sarajevo. Somebody wrote some hooligan, classical graffiti with a spray on the wall of the post office. He wrote, this is Serbia. And a few days later, somebody replied with another one saying, this is post office, you idiot. <laughs> and uh, that post office was completely burned down, you know. Like, but, uh, <laughs> or for example, like when they were wondering when Bill Clinton was that time president of U.S., we called him Bill Nebel Clinton because Bill Nebel is a local slang. So something when you're in doubt, would I or wouldn't I? Bill Nebel. And because one month he was for intervention in Bosnia, then next month he was against and uh, for and you so know. Bill so Nibble would be the flip flopper. Yeah, kind yeah. of would Bill I or wouldn't Clinton. I? Like should I or shouldn't I? It's and, interesting. Uh, We've talked about Sarajevo so long and we haven't even mentioned uh, 1914. 1914, yeah. And Princep and the start of the First World War. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of history in Sarajevo. Yeah, we have expression that says that we have more history than we can stand. It's you know, <laughs> yes. too much for too small country. More history than we can stand. That's the tourist slogan I can see right there. Yeah. <laughs> Sarajevo, more history than we can stand. <laughs> Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking about Bosnia and Sarajevo. We're joined by Amir Talabicerovic, and I'd also like to welcome my friend Cameron Hewitt into the conversation. Cameron co-authors our guidebook to Slovenia and Croatia. Cameron was just in Sarajevo to add that section to the book. And uh, Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Now, you were just in Sarajevo working on a guidebook. What was your impression from a tourism point of view of Sarajevo? Uh, I was very impressed with everything there is to see and do there, the history of the city, um, the rich cultural tapestry that Amir was talking about. There's sites related to the siege and the war that are really captivating, really, really poignant. There's also a lot of sites that predate the war, and I think that's something that visitors are imagine it, that it's, we're going to see this former war zone, but they don't realize how much there is beyond just the, the recent war. So the top three sites relating to the war, what would you say? They the top be? sites for people interested in the war would be the, the siege tunnel, which runs under the airport. The second would be the hillsides. The amazing thing about Sarajevo is it's, it's in a very narrow valley, and the city is right in the valley, but just a few minutes up out of town, you get into the, the hillsides. Perfect if hills- you want to siege a city, if you're an enemy Exactly, troops. yes. Yeah. And the hillsides are covered with what used to be parks or even forests, and now they're just huge cemeteries, these white tombstones standing up on the hills. Is there any uh, good site uh, relating to World War One and the assassination of Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand? One of the most important sites you can see in Europe about World War One is the, the spot where Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, right in downtown Sarajevo. Um, they've got a little museum there, but more interesting than that is just being there, standing on the place where the assassin pulled the trigger and ended up killing the heir to the empire that ended the age of empires and started World War One. Boy, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and uh, whenever I'm writing uh, about the region, I, I'm inclined to say Bosnia. And then uh, when you're writing with me, you make sure it's Bosnia-Herzegovina. Why? It's sort of a politically correct thing. It's the, the full name of the country is, is Bosnia. In the native language, Bosnia and Herzegovina is so the Is full that name. two regions that two, are together? Two separate geographical like regions. Schleswig-Holstein. Um, basically, yeah. Two uh, separate regions that are joined together as one country. Washington, Oregon. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> North and South Carolina. So, so it's okay to call it Bosnia for short, but the full name is Bosnia-Herzegovina. Amir, if I say Bosnia, does that uh, upset you? Should it be Bosnia-Herzegovina? No, 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 it's fine. Bosnia is So okay. it's just a geographical term. It's, it's correct to say Bosnia. It's, it's the oldest name. It's the 1,000 years old, and Herzegovina came later. And... Okay. Now, I, I understand there's a debate right now about who's caring for the heritage of the country. Its economic times are kind of tough, yeah. and there's no money for the museum. What's the latest on that? Yeah, the latest news, just before I um, came here, Sarajevo's Historical Museum, which was built in 1888 and holds very rich collection of various things, including the, some endemic species of the plants you could find only in Bosnia and the Balkans, and some very old stuff from the Antic time through the Ottoman to the Habsburg time. Among the other things over there uh, is something that's, I think, part of the American audience is familiar with. It's a book called Sarajevo Haggadah, is the ancient Jewish manuscript that was brought to Sarajevo, which was believed maybe 15th or 16th century, with uh, some Sephardic Jewish families who fled from the Spanish Inquisition. So this is a very precious book, 500 years old, the Haggadah, used at Passover by Jews in Sarajevo. Yeah. And what is the importance of this book now? I've heard that there used to be Haggadah in Sarajevo, one in uh, Istanbul, 
and one in Barcelona, and all of these disappeared. Somehow only Sarajevo Haggadah survived, and it contains the in Hebrew language description of the ancient exodus of the Jewish population from the pharaonic Egypt, and it's illustrated, which is also unusual. Wow, that's because a precious in a, manuscript. Because in, in the Hebrew, same as the Islamic traditions, it's not allowed to have, as you know, like the uh, images of humans and animals, but it has this Haggadah, it contains it. So, but there is also interesting kind of mystical story behind it, the book. The uh, book was sold to museum by the uh, one Cohen family, the Sarajevo Jewish Sephardic family, by the end of the 19th century in the Habsburg era. And it stayed uh, in museum for a while. And prior to the World War One, there was somebody had idea, some local uh, politician, to get it to Vienna, because that time Bosnia was part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire for a safety reason or for some exhibition. And the curator of museum disagreed with that because he believed it might disappear. So it stayed throughout the World War One. although uh, Sarajevo was not directly affected by the World War One, People were drafted and sent to the other fronts. Then the Second World War came, and the Nazis occupied Sarajevo, and they were taking a lot taking of the, the Jewish, uh, Jewish treasures. So one uh, SS officer came to the Sarajevo Museum and asked the curator of museum to give him a uh, Haggadah. And curator, who, by the way, belongs to the all the Sarajevo's uh, Muslim uh, family, he's a permanent Muslim scholar, he lied to the SS officer that uh, some German battalion already took it the day before. So the SS officer believed it and left it. And then he knew, the curator knew, it wouldn't take much before they discover it was lies. So together with his Croat colleague, he smuggled Haggadah outside of Sarajevo. And uh, according to most frequent version, it was held in one remote Bosnian Muslim village on a mountain around Sarajevo, which was so isolated that not even armies were going there until the end of the Second World War. Then after 1945, it was returned to museum where it stayed until the beginning of the siege of Sarajevo. Then, in 1992, museum happened to be like only 300 meters away from the uh, positions of the Serbian forces, who were including snipers. Actually, museum was in a sniper alley. So they were shooting almost every day, and you could hardly approach the museum. And one of the uh, shells hit the room where Haggadah was hidden, but it was in some uh, case made of steel, and it was damaged, but Haggadah survived. But many people knew it was not going to survive next round of shelling. So we had a team under siege of Sarajevo, consisted of all local Sarajevans, Serbs, Muslims and Croats, whose task was to preserve the uh, historical and cultural treasures. Hold on, you've got this precious Jewish book, this this Mm -hmm. treasure for the Jewish community. And for a hundred years of wars, different religious communities have been protecting it from destruction for the Jews. That book is a symbol of Bosnia, not just of Bosnian Jews. It's a common heritage. And, and what happened uh, then after the siege? Uh, yeah, after the uh, uh, museum was hit several times by the shells, this uh, team of the Sarajevans, they went to the museum risking their own lives. They went at night. All those snipers were shooting at night too. And they got Haggadah and other precious things from museum outside and they brought it to the deepest and most safest uh, vault in the downtown. I think it belonged to the old bank. And it was built even to sustain the nuclear assault. And not many people knew where it was. So then we heard unconfirmed story that with the help of UN, some Israeli Mossad agents visited Sarajevo in 1994 in order to get Haggadah and bring it for safety reasons to Israel. And uh, somebody spread a story that Bosnian army, because they had a lack of ammunition, they sold uh, Haggadah for I don't know how many millions of dollars in order to buy itself on a black market uh, the ammunition and weapons to defend the city, which was not true. And uh, they believed it and left uh, Sarajevo without Haggadah. So after the war, 1996, the president chairman of the Bosnian Jewish community, along with the Bosnian president, they invited all the foreign journalists to come to this vault of the bank. And uh, they said, now the city is safe again. We can say in front of the TV cameras that Haggadah is here. It was here all the time. And they brought it back to museum again. So that's a symbol of the city is safe, that they can yeah. bring the Haggadah out of hiding. Yeah. And it's also a symbol that the different communities of Sarajevo that historically have have been struggling with, yeah, yeah. with war, are now able to live together peacefully. Yeah, and some of them were even risking their own life in order to preserve this book. And can we and see so that on. as visitors today? Yes, in an historic museum. But I should say that a historical museum is in a bad condition. Uh, there is a lot of financial... So the, the financial struggles Financial now to, problems, to you know, like uh, they were about to close it, you know, but hopefully it will not. <laughs> Zarinu vechaspeinu, yar bekachol, 
Cameron Hewitt, when we listen to all of these stories from Amir, it just seems like Sarajevo has a a unique spirit of peace and cooperation, even in the most difficult of, of circumstances. That's something that surprised me as a visitor, for sure, is that this is a city that we associate with war and with siege and with genocide. Ironically, when you go to Sarajevo and you talk with someone like Amir and learn the history, you realize for most of its history, it was a symbol of exactly the opposite. It was a place where all of these different ethnicities could live in harmony. And Amir also pointed out to me when I visited him there that most of what befell Sarajevo in the 1990s came from outside forces. It wasn't Sarajevans fighting against Sarajevans. It was Sarajevans coming together of all different faiths to defend their city from outside invaders. And it sounds like media has a very powerful impact when it's in the hands of people who want to divide people. The more you travel in the former Yugoslavia, the more you find this is a common theme. Most everyday people on the street didn't want anything to do with these wars, but it wasn't until politicians with a lot of power and with a lot of media influence spread these messages of hate, this negative propaganda that Amir was talking about that rips apart the fabric of an otherwise peaceful nation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Cameron Hewitt, co-author of our Croatia-Slovenia guidebook, and Amir Talabicirovic, who is a journalist in Sarajevo. Amir, in your heart, what is the future for the people of Bosnia? I can speak from the um, kind of human point of view, not political. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's talking about EU, joining EU one day, but uh, that's something on the long term. It's difficult to be uh, both optimistic or pessimistic in the Balkans. You need to find some good, uh, I don't know, middle solution. It's more difficult than that to make prognosis. But I, I would say I'm kind of, I'm not pessimist, but I'm careful optimist, if there is something like that, you know. <laughs> So I believe that there there might be some positive changes. Uh, speaking, for example, of tourism, economy is very bad, but still tourism is growing up. So tourism is growing in Bosnia and yeah. in, in Sarajevo. In Sarajevo, Mostar Mountains. So, and I'll mm. tell you, one traveler who's got travel dreams now that are taking him to Sarajevo is Rick Steves. I've got to come yeah. over and visit you in Sarajevo. You have a guide. We, we have a date. Thank you very much, Amir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and best wishes. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Amir. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappen with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We also get web help from Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including links to our guests and a phone app with interviews from the show. Just look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Eastern Europe and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Eastern Europe, the best of the Adriatic, Prague and Budapest, and Bulgaria. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.